been doing the last couple months called Blueprints, looking at the, the book of 1 Timothy. And as we wrap it up tonight, we're going to look at one more area that Paul is reminding Timothy uh, of some instructions that he wants him to share with the church there in Ephesus. And, and some of Paul's final instructions here in the letter of 1 Timothy were on the issue of finances or our money. And I don't know why, but I feel like whenever I get the opportunity to speak here at CCC, it almost always is about money. And, and I don't know if that's John just trying to pass that off on me, or if it's God's way of saying you've got to keep looking at this in your life, or what it is. But I, I guess I shouldn't be too surprised, because the reality is, is that there's a lot that the New Testament says about this topic of money. In fact, nearly half of the the parables that Jesus told were about money. One in seven verses in the New Testament talks in some way about the topic of money. And if you look through the whole Bible, you'll find that there are 500 verses on prayer and, and less than 500 verses on the topic of faith, but there's more than 2,000 verses on the issue of our money and our finances. And so as you kind of think about that and look, about, look at the, you know, the magnitude of, of how much the Bible says about money, I think that there's a conclusion that we have to draw that will get us started today, and that's this, that there's a, fun, a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about, and I probably should have put, and use our money. And I don't know about you, but when I say that statement or read that statement, it makes my heart sink a little bit. And, uh, you know, probably because I know I've got some work to do in this area of my finances. And it's actually something that I've been trying to pay more and more attention to over the last few months and, and trying to be a little more diligent in, in looking at my finances and how we use them. And as I've worked on budgets and I've looked at projections and, and I've tried to figure out how to allocate the funds that God's entrusted to me, there seems to be this one constant conclusion that I keep coming to. And that's that there's never enough to go around. There's never enough to put into savings for when uh, things might be needed. There's never enough to invest in my retirement for way down, in the, you know, way, way down in, the, you know, in my life. Um, there's never enough to invest for our kids' college funds to help them through that crazy expensive process if they choose that route. There, there's never enough for the hobbies that I want to enjoy. And maybe you guys feel that too. Maybe you've felt that sense of, man, there's just not enough to go around. There's not enough to buy that bigger house we need for our growing family, or there's not enough to replace that vehicle that is in the shop every other week, and there's not enough for that long-needed vacation for our family, or, or all the activities that the kids are participating in and opportunities they have, or, or to invest in your future, or sometimes even just to pay the bills. It doesn't seem like there's enough to go around. And we probably all have had that feeling and know that feeling of not having enough, not having as much as we would like to have. And, and no matter where you fall kind of in the economic scale, whether you're on the lower end or on the higher end, there's probably times that you feel that. We all do. But this feeling of not having enough is something that I think we have to pay attention to and we have to be aware of because of the statement that you see on the screen. And it's because... Even though money is neutral, it's not good or bad, it's just neutral, it is very, very powerful. It is very powerful in our lives. And whether we have a little bit or whether we have a lot, it can do one of two things. It can either pull us towards God or it can push us away from Him. 
And this is the danger that Paul talks about here in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that we're going to be looking at this morning. And if you have, uh, want to use the Bibles there under the chairs in front of you, you can do that or pull out your devices. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6 this morning. And Paul talks about this danger. He talks about this idea of money and the desire for it is, um, in, by speaking to two separate groups within the church there in Ephesus. And, and he speaks to those who are poor or those who, who think or feel like they don't have enough. And he speaks to a group that is wealthy or that has quite a bit. And these groups, you know, two groups probably existed in every church all throughout history. There's always uh, that difference in economics in any, any gathering of people. And it's true in our church as well. There's some on this end and there's some on this end and there's a bunch in between as well. But as Paul addresses these groups, both the rich and the poor, I think there's some specific things that we can pull from both of them, no matter where we fall on that, about the power of money and how it relates to our lives. And so he begins by addressing those who were kind of on the poorer end of the spectrum, those who, who didn't have much. And, and he does that because there were some false teachers in the church that were teaching something that just wasn't true. It says, you see that in the end of verse 5, it says, this is what they said, those who believe or those who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. And so there's these false teachers that were teaching that if you follow Jesus, then it's going to result in financial gain in your life. And if you were one of those people on the poor end of the spectrum, you can imagine how inviting that would be. Man, no matter where you fall on that spectrum, it would be inviting, right? That if I follow Jesus, my financial, my net worth is going to go up. And so Paul was com combating this teaching. And uh, we don't know exactly how they said that gain would come. We don't know exactly what that would look like, but you can imagine how tempting that was for people who were new followers of Jesus. And so Paul's contrasting what the false teachers were teaching, and he does so by saying this in verse 6. He says, godliness with great gain, or with contentment, is great gain. He was, he was contrasting what they were saying. He says, godliness, our pursuing of God, our, our relationship with God, our growth to become more and more like Jesus, if you take that, that same starting place, uh, that, the, that the false teacher started, but you add something different to it. You add contentment to that. Contentment is just the being satisfied with what we, what we have. And, and this is a, a pretty important component of this passage that Paul's going to be uh, working or walking through with us here. And, and, and so I was trying to think, what's a way that we can think about this idea of contentment that really makes it real and really not just understand it intellectually, but we know what it feels like to be content. And so the best example that I came up with has to do with eating. And uh, I don't know if this is true of you, but it's often true of me. I sometimes, not often enough, um, will eat enough food so that I am no longer hungry, but also I have not eaten way more than I should have. The problem is, is that I'm often, if I, especially if I go to uh, Shady Maple or the Chinese Buffet, because I'm Dutch enough that I feel like I have to get my money's worth, find myself eating way more than I need to be satisfied. You know, I've got to eat enough that I feel like somehow it's justified what I paid for it. And I'm, not, I'm beyond satisfied at that point, but that point where, yeah, where you're not hungry, but you're not so stuffed you can hardly move, that's satisfaction. You've got enough. You're satisfied with what you have. And so hopefully maybe that as we walk through this and we think about this idea of contentment, that, that'll help uh, draw a picture of what that looks like and what that feels like in your life. And so what Paul's saying, he's like, you take godliness and you combine it with contentment. If you take pursuing God and combine it with being satisf 
satisfied with what you have, he says it leads to great gain. And he doesn't really explain what the great gain is here. We'll kind of get to that a little bit later. But he's contrasting the financial gain of the, of the false teachers. He's saying this is an even better gain than what they're promising when you live a life of godliness with contentment. So how do we get to that place? How do we get to a place where that's true of us, where contentment is a reality in our lives, where we're satisfied with what we have and where God has us? Well, I think Paul follows this statement with kind of a puzzling one in verse 7, but I think it helps us to, to kind of understand. I think he's using it as some reasoning behind this idea of how we can be content. And he says this in verse 7. He says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. And that seems kind of like a strange, what in the world does that mean? But I think as we, as we think about that and the reality uh, that we're all born into this world with nothing, right? We don't have anything. You, don't, you, don't, um, you aren't born with clothes on and a laptop under your arm and the keys to the car in your hands. And when we leave this earth at the end of our life, we leave in the same way. Everything that we've accumulated during that time stays behind. Our soul leaves and enters eternity, but everything else stays behind. And so I think when Paul is, what Paul's trying to highlight in, this, in this, this verse is the fact that he wants to remind us of these few things, and, and it's that everything that we have comes from God. Everything from birth to death that we have and we enjoy comes from God. And also that our life is just a short little journey. This short little from birth to death is a short journey. It, it, in light of eternity, in light of what came before, and in light of what's going to come after, it's just a little blip on the radar. And, and, and if you're like me, it's often hard to think in light of eternity, or, what, or think beyond just the here and now. But Paul says this in, in Romans, he says, set your minds on things above, not on the things of this world, something that's outside this world, something that is eternal. Jesus says, don't store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven, ones that will last beyond this life. And uh, so, so Paul's trying to help us to understand that there's an eternality to uh, us that lasts beyond just this life. And that our money and our possessions are meant to be a tool for us to use while we are on that short journey. And I think the last thing that we have to come down to is, as we think of our life from birth to death, is do we really trust God to provide? Because that's ultimately what contentment comes down to. That we're satisfied with what we have and we trust God with where we're at and with what we have or don't have. This idea of, of trusting God to provide, especially on a kind of a day-in and day-out basis, is something that uh, is probably new to me in the last several years. In fact, I, I grew up in, in a family that provided well for me. I grew, I have since then have been able to, you know, God's provided me with jobs and opportunities to provide for myself and for my family in ways that I've not really had to worry about my basic needs being met. But... A few years ago, when we started taking students down to Haiti, I, I met some people who lived life very differently from me. And, uh, you know, at first I just kind of saw it from the outside, but as I began to build relationships with them and I began to, um, you know, kind of walk along life with them a little bit, I began to see that, wow, they live in a really different way. That, that for them, you know, for a lot of people even here in the United States, that they don't know what's going to come the next day. And they have to trust God just for the food for the next day, that, that they have to trust that God's going to provide the money to send their kids back to school the next year or to fill up the gas tank so they can get to work or to put clothes on their family's back. And, and I remember having a conversation with my friend, Pastor Robbie, one time, 
and I, and I was watching the way that he lived, and I, just, I asked him, I said, how is it that you live just from day to day? How do you, how do you make it not knowing what tomorrow is going to bring? And he said this, and it's stuck with me ever since. He says, I just trust God to provide. And he does in all different ways. He does in all different ways. And I thought, man, that's how I need to live my life. Even though I have much, I need to live my life in a way that I trust God each and every day to provide that. Because ultimately, that comes from him. And I think that's what Paul's trying to help us grasp as we, we think about this word picture that he creates for us. That, that's why we can be content, because we understand and we can trust uh, in the God that gave us all that we have. And that, that this life isn't just about here and now, it's about all of eternity. And we can't just focus on the here and now and that our money is to be viewed as something just necessary for the journey as opposed to the main goal of it. Now Paul's not saying, as we talk about this idea of contentment, that, that people should live in extreme poverty. People should live without their basic needs being met. In fact, he speaks into that in verse 8 where he says this. He says, but if we have food and, drink, or food and clothing, we will be content with that. And this word here for clothing is actually has the idea of covering. So it actually could mean not just clothing, covering for the body, but, but shelter as well. And so what Paul's saying is that if we have food and if we have shelter and if we have clothing, then our basic needs are being met, and that's what we can be content with. Now what he's not saying is that this is how we're supposed to live or this is how everyone should live. He's just describing the minimum with which we can be content. The minimum with which we can be content. He's saying, if your basic needs are met and you have anything beyond that, you can be content with where you're at. And he's not saying we have to downsize and we need to you know, sell our houses and our possessions and join the micro-house movement, you know, and everybody has to move into a tiny house. It's you know, the movement that's kind of sweeping our nation right now and leave a small footprint. Although if you want to do that, that is awesome. You can sell your 1,500-square-foot house and move into 250 square feet of that. And uh, if you choose to do that, that's great. But that's not really what Paul's saying. He's not saying that it's about downsizing. He's just trying to create a baseline. He said this is the minimum with which we can be content. This is the baseline. And anyone that reaches this baseline has their basic needs met. They can be content. They can be content. The question that I asked myself as we were going through this is as I, I realized the difficulty sometimes in my own life to be content with what I have is why is this even important? Why, why is Paul talking about contentment? Why, why does this matter to us? And, and what's the problem with wanting to have what we don't have? And Paul goes on in verses 9 and 10, and, and he talks about that, and he gives us a warning, actually, about that, about this desire for more and more. He says this, he says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul basically, if you, if you notice there, is saying the same thing three different ways. He says, you know, if you want to get rich, Here's some things that are true about that. If you have a love for money, here are some things that are true about that. If you're eager for money, here's some other things that are true about that. And he's describing for us the opposite of contentment. This love of money, this desire to get rich, this is the opposite of contentment. It's a strong desire for more. And he, he warns that the dangers of this desire, remember the, the power that we talked about that that money has, is that it can take you places 
that you never wanted to go. It's a temptation. It's a, it's a trap. It leads to ruin and destruction and all kinds of evil, and it can cause you to walk away from the faith and leave you with many griefs. If we think about this in, in our culture today, we've probably seen the realities of this in, in people's lives. Maybe some in our own, maybe some in people around us, um, but definitely if we watch the news or read the newspaper, we see these things, you know, where, where the desire for more has caused people to start down a path that, that leads them somewhere they never intended to go, that leads them to some pretty dark places. Their desire for more begins to blur the lines between what's right and what's wrong, between what's wise and what's foolish. And maybe, you know, maybe it starts out for them, they just start investing in every get-rich scheme that comes along. And instead of getting rich, they just keep losing more and more every time that it happens. Or maybe for others, you know, they just begin to tweak some things on their taxes a little this year and, and maybe a little next year and, and just trying to find some ways to keep a little bit more. Maybe there's ways where they, you know, run up large amounts of consumer debt just because they have this desire for more or buy a house that they can't afford or a car that's more than they can afford. Or maybe it's something like just not being really honest on our timesheet as we fill that out and turn that in. You know, and maybe there's some ways that we've struggled with this. We've let this desire for more in our life, this love for money, creep its way in and start to blur those lines for us. And Paul says it starts pretty simple, but it begins to spiral out of control pretty quickly. And, and, and you know, and it moves from that to, to being willing to cheat and do anything to get ahead, being willing to, to take advantage of others for your own gain, beginning to start to do things that really cross the line of what's legal and what's not. And if we've watched the news and read the newspapers, we've seen all sorts of stories of where it ends in stealing and blackmail and embezzling and even committing murder, all for the sake of getting more money. And the warning that Paul is, is giving is that any of us really can fall into this temptation. He, even though he, he is, is talking to a group of people who were poorer in the church, this, I think, is a reality for any one of us, that this desire for more can take control of any one of our lives. And it can begin real subtly, but it ends in some pretty significant misery. And instead of, of trusting God, right, with what we do have, we let what we don't have become our God and become our focus. And, and Paul says that, that you know, it, it causes people to even wander away from the faith, even walk away from God just because of what they don't have and their longing for more. And, and he doesn't mean that that they're walking away from their, their personal trust in Jesus as their Savior, but he's saying they walk away from the truth of God, the way that God calls us and asks us to live our lives. And our love for money can, be, can replace our love for him. And what we think will provide us with the happiness and the satisfaction that we're seeking, Paul says, really only provides us with pain and grief and destruction. And the reason for that is because, uh, like the author of Ecclesiastes said in Ecclesiastes 5.10, he says, whoever loves money never has enough. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This desire and this love for money, this, this wanting more and more is insatiable. It can never be satisfied. And no matter how much you have, you're left always wanting more. And Paul warns us that this, this desire for, for money, this desire for wealth can replace our desire for God. And our, and our love for money can replace our love for God and it can become our God instead. 
And so I think as we think about these words that Paul shared, I think there's a couple statements that, that, I, that I thought through that I think are helpful for us to, to take a look at this and to really put this into perspective, and, the, and that's these. And the, the first one is this, is that contentment, right, being satisfied with what we have, keeps God as our God as we trust him, and it keeps our wealth as our tool. And that's what Paul's describing here. But when we allow discontentment to creep in and we kind of follow the path there of the false teachers, discontentment makes money our God and it makes God our tool, our means in which we try to gain more. That's what the false teachers were saying could happen for you. Paul goes on, he doesn't just stop here with this discussion on contentment and and being satisfied with what we have. He he goes on and, and he addresses uh, something else in this idea of wealth. And, and he goes on in verses 17 to 19 to talk to those who have a lot, to those, as he calls, are rich. And he tells Timothy this in verse 17. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in their wealth. And he, he really gives two warnings here to, to the wealthy. He says, number one, he says, don't be arrogant. Now the reality is in most cultures, those who are rich are held in high esteem, right? We're given places of privilege. They're given preferential treatment. We often hold their opinions in high regard. We uh, will speak to them maybe differently than we would speak to someone who uh, is poor and on the street. And, and we often look at those who are successful and wealthy as someone, as a role model to follow. And we'll often do the opposite with those who have very little. We won't let them have a voice. We won't think that they have much to offer or that they have much to give, and we'll put them in a low position and hold them down in that way. And there aren't too many times in, in my life where, you know, I've walked into the room and, and you know, been uh, the wealthy guy in the room, but uh, when I go to Haiti, that's really, really true. And, and I've, I've felt a little bit of this arrogance in myself as I've walked into situations in Haiti, and, and you'll walk in and they'll, they'll want to honor you, and they'll want to sit you up front, you know, right in the best seats, and They'll want to, you know, um, honor you just for being present, even though you just showed up and you haven't even really done anything. And uh, sometimes, you know, they'll just want to hold you in high regard, and they'll want to come and meet you and talk with you and have a conversation. Now, sometimes this is just, and as, I, as we've built relationships there with the church that we partner with there, this is just hospitality. But I've been in other situations there where, where it's been more than that. It's where I'm looked at as the rich white American you know, who might be able to offer assistance. And, and that little bit of, of pride can start to creep in when you think, I do have something to offer you. I, I can give you my great wisdom that's, you know, allowed me to be in this position. And reality is that's not really the case. And so sometimes, you know, uh, this kind of treatment can lead to pride and arrogance, a really distorted view of our own importance. And we can easily think more highly of ourselves just because we have more than someone else. And Paul says, don't do that. He says, don't be arrogant. He says, don't do that. And secondly, he says this, he says, don't put your hope in your wealth. And he takes us again back to this issue, this idea of trust, of where our trust is. And if you have wealth, are you trusting your, your wealth? Are you trusting your net worth for your security and for your provision and for your meaning and your significance and your value? Or are you putting your trust and your hope in the God who gave it all to you for those things? And Paul warns us, he says, he says, if you're wealthy, he says, don't be arrogant and don't put your hope in your wealth. He says, because it's so uncertain. He says, don't put your trust in your wealth because it could be there one moment and it could be gone the next. All it takes is an illness or an accident or a natural disaster or a stock market crash or 
a couple of bad decisions on our part, and everything that we had is gone. You know, our wealth is to be a, a tool to be used, but not something to be trusted in, not something to be counted on. That's what our God is for. That's what Paul says next. He says, put your hope in God. He says, that's something that is constant. That's something or someone that is unchanging, that, that's trustworthy, that's eternal. That's something you can put your full trust in, and it will never let you down. And we can trust God, and we can, we can put our trust in Him because... Went too far. Sorry. He, he's the one who richly provided all this for us. Anyway, Paul reminds us again that what we have comes from God and everything that we have, even for our enjoyment. And that's why our hope should be in Him instead of in what we have. There's also something interesting about this verse that, that I think is good for us to, to realize. When I said a little bit ago that Paul wasn't calling us just to, to sell all our stuff and to downsize as much as we can, um, this verse tells us that God also provides not just for our basic needs, but He provides some things just for our enjoyment, and that that's okay, and that that's not wrong. And, you know, he gives us some of those extras in life that can bring enjoyment. But Paul's warning is that in that, those of us who have more than others should not put our hope in that and should not trust in what we have, but trust in the one who gave those things to us. Paul goes on, he has one last command here for Timothy to give to those who are wealthy, and that's this. He says, command them, instead of being arrogant and instead of putting their trust and their hope in their wealth, but command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. He said, instead of being, being um, known for your wealth, he says, be known for how you live. Instead, be known for your godliness. That connection back to verse 6. Be known for your good deeds. Be rich, but not with money. Be rich in doing good for other people. Instead of being arrogant, instead of being proud, be generous. There's a piece of humility that comes in there. Instead of, being, instead of trusting in your wealth, he says, be willing to share your wealth with other people. And that's something that should be true of, of any Christian that has any amount of wealth. And he goes on, he says, here's, here's why, here's our motivation to do that. It says, because... When they do that in this way, they'll lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. When, when we decide as, as a follower of Jesus to be generous, we're no longer just building things for this life. We're building things that last for eternity, that, that make a difference somehow in the next life. And something that will last far longer than any of our money or our stuff that we can't take with us. Something that will last forever when you live a, a life of generosity and, and of sharing with other people, of being known for your good deeds, he says you get a taste of life the way that it was supposed to be, the way that it will be again in eternity. You get to experience life the way that God designed it and the way God planned it before sin and selfishness entered the world and caused us to be so inward-focused instead of outward-focused. And as Paul says here in this verse, he says you get to experience life that is truly life, the real thing, the, the way that it was meant to be. And, and we don't get a full picture of it in this lifetime. That's only in eternity. But we get a, a taste, a sweet taste of what life is supposed to be like when we are generous. And even though these warnings and these commands that Paul gives to the church in Ephesus or to Timothy to give to the church in Ephesus 
or to two very distinct groups of people. I think this morning as we look at what Paul said, uh, no matter where you are in that economic scale, no matter where you land or where you feel you're at, these are two, things, two areas that we need to, to pay attention to in our life. They're, if you will, Paul's blueprint for our own finances, for, for the way that we look at and view and use our money. And he says you've got to be content with what you have, and you've got to be known or should be known for being generous. And I think we need to look at each one of these areas, and I think one really feeds off the other. I think it's hard to be generous when we're not content. And when we have a strong desire for more, it's hard to give away what we have. And so I want to look at each of these here real briefly and just give you some, you know, some practical thoughts, reminders, and as, as you think about this and as you evaluate each one of these statements in your own life. And the first one is... is you know, be content with what you have. And I think the first thing that we have to do is we really just have to honestly assess and check where our heart is. We have to ask ourselves the question, am I satisfied with what I have? Am I satisfied with where I'm at? Or am I always longing for more and always longing for more? Now, I do want to say this is assuming, remember, that your basic needs are being met. And if you're here and that is not true of you, then I hope that you will let us know and let us come alongside you in any way we can to, to help you in that situation. But for any of us that are at that baseline where our basic needs are met, then we can choose to be content and we've got to check our hearts and see if that's where we are. I think we have to remember as we do that that the desire for more is unending. If we let that creep in, if we think, oh, it's no big deal if I just want a little bit more, Right? We have to be really careful because that desire is just hard to satisfy. It, it won't be satisfied. And, and, and the thing that can help us, right? the thing that can help us with that is this, is that we have to trust that God has you where he wants you right now. It may not be where you're going to be forever. The things in our life will change and we'll slide up and we'll probably slide down and, and who knows where we'll end up. But the reality is, is, is that God's calling us to trust him with where we're at right now. And, and be content with what we have. And then the last thing, just the reminder that if we let that desire take root in our heart, if we let it grow, it can take us to some pretty dangerous places, some places that we really, really, I doubt any of us would want to go. Now this idea of contentment is, is a pretty internal one. It, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a heart attitude. It's something that you kind of have to look at. It's an inward change. It's not necessarily one that everyone around you is going to see. But I want to challenge you as you think about this this week and as you wrestle with this idea of contentment and satisfaction in your own life to, to not just keep it on the inside, not just keep it in your mind and in your heart, but to share it with someone. Maybe that's in your small group. If you're in one of our small groups and you can talk with them just about this struggle and how this is hard in your life or talk with a trusted friend and share with them just that, so you have someone that can walk with you in this. Because sometimes these things take root and we don't even always, uh, always understand and see the ways that they play out in our lives. So as you, as you wrestle with that one, have someone walk with you through that. So after we've checked you know, where we are on, uh, with our contentment, the other thing that Paul calls us to here is to be known for being generous, to be known for be, be, being generous. And I think we have to go back to that thing we said over and over and over again and that Paul kept reiterating that we have to remember that everything that we have comes from God. If we don't start there, then it's hard to be generous because then it's just, it's my stuff and maybe it's hard to share my stuff, but if we remember that it's what God entrusted me with, maybe I'm willing to share that a little more freely. This is going to sound really, really silly, but um, we had an example of this in our family this week. 
And uh, I'm a little embarrassed to share this, but I think it makes the point. Somebody that is an acquaintance of ours and that we don't know very well asked us this week if they could borrow our cooler this weekend. And when my wife called or texted and told me that they'd asked that, the reality was the first thing in my in response in my heart was, no, why, why do they need our cooler? Why do they, we don't even know them that well. Like, what if they don't bring it back? Or, you know, what if they use it for things we don't think they should use it for? I'm like, I'm not going to give them, I'm like, of course, I'm studying this passage. I'm like, okay, that cooler that's probably worth $10 and is 15 years old came from God. And, and I got to let go. And I'm like, why? I was embarrassed that I was holding on tightly to a cooler. If it doesn't come back, I think I can trust that God will provide me with another one. You know, I, I don't know what it was, but I, like we struggle with this. I struggle with this. I won't speak for you, but, right? but remembering, that's so important, remembering that everything comes from God because that helps us to change our view of our possessions and our wealth, and we start to look at them as just tools for a time, just tools for a time, just tools for this life, just things that God wants us to use, not just to have. I was just having a cooler because I wasn't using it this weekend. I was just wanted to have it and not use it to bless someone and let them have a good Memorial Day weekend. All right. The next thing is this, is that uh, we've got to find ways to invest in eternal, uh, in, in, in eternal returns and, and, and find ways that we can give generously. All right? Not just give in ways so that we get something more, but give in ways that, um, that it, it makes a difference in eternity, that makes a difference in other people's lives. And, and, and I want to say that it, this is, it doesn't matter what the amount is connected to this. All right? There is no amount that once you give this amount, oh, then you're being generous, or you, give, you don't give that amount, then you're not being generous. Like, Whatever you are able to do and able to be generous with, that's being generous. When you give of what you have for the benefit of others, it's generosity, and the amount doesn't matter. But we've got to find ways in our lives to, to practice that, whether it's with a cooler or whether it's with our money. And then the whole reason is because when we do, or not a reason, but the benefit of it is that we get that little taste of the life that's to come. We get to, we get to experience the way God intended it to be where, where it's not all about us, but it's about those around us and it's about what God's doing in the world. And You know, there's a lot of, of different ways that generosity can, can play out in your life. There's a lot of different ways that you can give to and bless and help other people. And, and I know that many of you are, are doing that in a lot of different ways. And, and I think that's awesome. And, not, and all I can say is that's great. Keep doing it. And maybe ask God, is there a new way or a different way? Or some way that you need to relook at what you're doing there. And, and I know that many of you give generously here. I've seen it over the last several years as we, as we were um, buying this building. We watched people give sacrificially and give generously so that we could finally have a, a place to put our, you know, put our feet down and, and make it our home. And then as we were renovating, we continued to see people give generously. And some have been giving for years and years and years so that we could have a great place where people can come and be challenged to love God and to love others. And, and we saw it this Christmas Eve when, when gave an amazing amount of money towards our benevolence fund so that we as a church have some, some, some means in which to, to bless and to, to help those in our church and community that are in need. And, you know, even just in our regular kind of general fund giving this year, it has been, uh, been amazing. We've had a really, really great year in that regard. And, 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 and so we've seen that People here are generous and give, and, and that's amazing, and we don't want you to stop any of those things. That's not, not what we're saying, but what we also want to do and what we also want to pay attention to is, is we want to pay attention to generosity in a way that goes outside these walls, too, and into our community and into our world. And, you know, we want to be known as a church in our community and around the world that's generous, that's, that's willing to give of itself, not just take care of itself, but to give of itself for the better, um, 
to better the lives of those around us. And so we, we wanted to think of a way that as we, as we walk through this challenge with you this morning that we could give you some practical and some easy ways to do that. And, and we came up with this idea that we want to just do something this summer that we've never really done before. And we're just going to call it the, the summer of generosity. And so we want to give you some opportunities this summer just to put into practice what Paul was challenging us here, to be generous, to, to be known for doing good and to be giving and sharing of what we have. And so we've identified um, over the next two months in June and July a couple uh, opportunities that you can give generously towards. And the first one is just a chance to really make a difference in our world. And you've heard me talk about Haiti and the connection there. And so for the month of June, our focus is going to be on generosity towards the church in Haiti and our contributions uh, that people that choose to give to this summer of generosity during the month of June will go to, to Mitar Ambassador Church. And that's the church you see behind us. And, and, and we have partnered with them for a long time. We've actually given them um, some gifts as well. But one of the realities is we've built a relationship with them over the four years or the past um, four, yeah, four years or so, is that, that as they bought this property back in 2013, when we first started going to Haiti, um, it was a pretty significant amount of money. They had been kind of kicked off where their church had been meeting, and uh, they, they purchased this property on a pretty big step of faith. It, the property cost $150,000, and that's a lot here, and that's a whole lot in Haiti. And, and to this date, they've already been able to pay 90000 of that already, but recently they just haven't been able to continue to make consistent payments towards the rest of the debt that they owe. And they've actually been threatened by the owner to this spring to, to oh, he actually did take them to court and threatened to be kind of evicted out of their church home where they've kind of planted and they've done all these improvements and, and, and built their church building there. And uh, so we want to just come alongside them and encourage them. They've not stopped working. They're continuing. They've held concert fundraisers and they've asked other churches to come alongside them and help them. And they've continued to ask their people to give sacrificially. There just isn't much there to give. And so we want to come and help them with this remaining $60,000 burden. And I don't know what God will do through this, but anything that we can do as a church to help them, will be, they'll be grateful for and, and we'll be able to to give them the opportunity to continue, continue to make the payments that they need to so they can continue to make a difference in the community there in Carfu, Haiti. And so that's going to be our, our focus for the month of June, and we'll continue to remind you of that and give you uh, more details about that. And in July, we want to focus on something that's a little bit more uh, close to home, right here in our community, actually. And, and we want to give you the opportunity to give towards a project called the Denver House. And if you've been around here for a while you, and you've driven through downtown Denver, you've seen here uh, on the left the kind of the blighted property that was known as the Denver House. And recently an organization in our community called Real Life Community Services has purchased the, that building and, and they have a dream of, of remodeling it instead of being something that, that's a drag on the community, something that gives back to the community. And on the upper levels, they want to provide low-income housing for, for families who are struggling. And, and as well, on the bottom level, they want to create um, a social services hub and network um, that kind of takes all the services that are available in the area and it just kind of brings it to one place so when someone needs help, they don't have to run here and there and, and try to figure out where to go. They can go here to start and get connected with all the help that they need. And for us as a church, this is a great opportunity to make a difference in our community. And in fact, some of you I know have been involved in this. John's been involved uh, in this in, in a lot of ways and in um, helping the organization think through this. And I know some of you have even volunteered to do some of the work there in the building itself. 
um, over the past several months, and, but we want to come alongside them as a church and just uh, do something alongside of other churches and organizations in our church to make a difference in our community and make a difference in the lives of people around us. And so I hope this summer that you'll consider participating in whatever way you can. And, and uh, just to give you a heads up, here's some of the ways that you can give. You can just mark Generosity Haiti or Generosity Denver House on, a, on your check or if you use the giving envelopes or, or uh, online, they'll have those options that you can choose from if you use the online giving or you can just simply mail something into the office if you'd like. And I, I hope and I challenge you to think about your participation in this as, as we step away from this challenge that Paul gave us to be content, but to be known, to be rich in being generous. And, and to get individually, as you move towards that, and corporately together as a church as we move towards that, that we'd be known, right? that we would be rich in doing good deeds, we'd be known for our generosity and for helping those who are in need. So let me pray with you this morning as we ask God to help us as we wrestle with this in our lives. God, we thank you so much for your generosity in our lives. And God, really, that's the, the place that we begin. We always have to come back to you and the realization that all that we have comes from you. And God, it's just sometimes hard for us based on our experience here and you know, really living in a pretty affluent country that we just don't see that all that we have does come from you, and we don't realize that apart from you, we wouldn't have those things. And so, God, I pray that you'd help us as we wrestle with this idea of contentment and the, the desire that, uh, to have more, and we're bombarded with that in our culture every day as we, as we go throughout our daily lives. And, and God, help us to be aware of that in our hearts. Help us to see where we're trusting in our stuff and in our things and not trusting in you. And God, as we, as we move towards being satisfied with where you have us and with what we have, God, help us to be people who are known for their generosity, people who are willing to share the things and the resources that you've given us. God, no matter where we fall economically, there's always going to be those who have more and there's always going to be those who have less. And Paul didn't really speak into that. He just says, if you have more than your basic needs, then you can be content and you ought to be generous to others. And so God, help us to do that. Help us to uh, take steps towards that this week. Help us this summer as a church as we try to, to, to move towards being generous around the world and in our own community. And God, we pray that as we do that, it, it won't be so we can pat ourselves on the back, but it, because it will make some eternal differences that will last way beyond this life. And God, we ask you to just give us a little bit of taste of the life that's really life the way it should be as we do. And we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.